Hi, I'm Mark Kernian and I teach chemistry. Hi, I'm Jack Kernian and I teach physics. And welcome to the My Science Podcast, where learning about chemistry and physics becomes what it always should have been, fun and interesting, yet serious and valuable. Mark and I are identical twin brothers who started our careers as engineers and switched to science education more than three decades ago. That's over 60 years of combined experience teaching high school students about the amazing insights of the physical sciences. And we want to share that experience with you. So if you have any comments or questions about today's podcast, send them to kernian at myscience-prep.com. That's K-E-R-N-I-O-N at myscience-prep.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Jack, I think everybody knows that you teach physics and I teach chemistry. And I think also you should be able to, as a result then, describe for me in a sentence, maybe two, what are the big ideas of physics? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, that actually is something I, I feel like I can answer pretty easily because the classes that I teach emphasize the big ideas, you know? So one of the big ideas is that uh, systems or particles within systems can interact with each other and, you know, by enforcing uh, each other around. Um, another big idea is that there's a conservation of energy. That's something I talked about in a different podcast. Um, other uh, things are like that energy can be transmitted in waves or can be done with, uh, you know, pushing on objects and so on. So those sorts of things would be, I'd consider big ideas. And what would you say about a person who perhaps was able to uh, contribute uh, to physics, like maybe uh, with regards to all of those aspects. I mean, not just oh. one of them. Yeah, that would be a very special person. Be a special scientist, I think right? So. Yeah, yeah, special yeah. physicist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were able to contribute to, to many of the big ideas yes. uh, associated with a particular um, discipline. Mm-hmm. And so in chemistry, the, 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 there are generally considered to be six big ideas. Okay. Uh, the, the, you know, the first is that like, you know, particles, like atoms, exist. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that they uh, atoms group up is second, mm-hmm. so they don't remain isolated. I like to always talk about them being de-isolated. Right. And then these groupings of particles, which many people recognize they're referred to as molecules, those groupings could change. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we take a look at after we recognize that these um, um, things could be grouped up and that they change is how fast that change takes place. Right. That's called chemical kinetics. Yep. And then we all, always want to ask the question, like, why is it that it occurs as well? And so, like, how, um, you know, what is it that pushes these particular things around? And that's really like a thermodynamic look at, mm-hmm. at chemical processes. And then finally, to what end? Uh, what's the, you know, the end goal of all this stuff? And we recognize that that is nothing more than like uh, reaching an equilibrium. So okay. I'm always like, pleased to talk about like these six big ideas. There are particles. They group up. Those groupings change. These changes happen at different speeds. The reason why they change is the second law of thermodynamics. And then ultimately the goal of all this change is to reach equilibrium. So it makes chemistry sound like pretty simple. I mean, it isn't that hard. Yeah, Particles, think- groupings, groupings change. They change mm-hmm. at different speeds. Occurs because of the second law ultimately to reach equilibrium. Yeah, and I think the, the stuff that you just mentioned about thermodynamics is uh, actually has some overlap into the physics realm, ob- obviously, as well. Right, because you so, talked about, too, like particle interaction as yes. being a pretty big deal. Yep. And um, so I, I think that anybody who contributes to those particular aspects in, in a significant way, and not just one, but many of them would be considered to be like a pretty famous 
chemist or a yeah, scientist. You got right? me convinced yeah, so, of that for yeah. sure. Looking so, forward um, to seeing who this yeah. is. <laughs> I'm just wondering, have you ever heard of Jacopus Henricus Van Hoff? No, I, I mean, for some reason, Van Hoff kind of sticks in my mind for some reason, but I wouldn't have known that whole name for yeah. sure. So uh, he was a, um, a Dutch scientist, Dutch chemist, who is considered to be, uh, in all honesty, the greatest chem- one, of the, one of the greatest chemists of all time. Huh. Because what he did was contribute in many of those particular aspects of chemistry that I just talked about, that I just said. And I, I'm going to talk about several of those today uh, and, and give you a recognition why in 1901 he won the first Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Hmm, okay. Uh, it's both a, um, a scientific honor and a historical one, too, so, mm-hmm. uh, because he's the first person to win a Nobel Prize in Chemistry for contributions in many of the things that, that I just mentioned to you, and we'll take a look at specifically what those things are. Okay. He started his career as an organic chemist. Would you be able to like, like differentiate that particular discipline of chemistry from others? I always think about it as having to do with carbon, something yeah, with carbon. The chemistry yeah. of, of carbon compounds. Right. So how it is that carbon combines with other things is, and, mm-hmm. and the kind of groupings yeah. that, that are taken a look at are really the topics found in, in organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of those kinds of um, uh, classes that college kids take that they would find pretty difficult, right? And when we talk about like Gen Chem, which stands for General Chemistry. Yeah, it's like the first couple of semesters of chemistry that college students might take. And then we talk about O Chem. That's the organic which, part. Which is mm-hmm. organic chemistry. That's right. And then we talk about the P Chem. Physical chemistry. Which is the physical part. I remember yeah. that class in college. That's a tough <laughs> class yeah, when P-chem you first start going into it. It's yeah. very difficult, I think, the first time you take it. And, and actually turns out to be, I think, once you spend some time with it, you know, not hard at all. But at the same time, it's hard. very difficult yeah. at first for a lot of students, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it was it was difficult for me. I mean, well, it was the first think... and only C that I got in college, the first <laughs> okay. the first course in physical chemistry. Well, I think part of it is because it does combine so much stuff. You know, I think about physical chemistry is exactly what the name says. It's chemistry and physics combined. So a lot of the, a lot of the thermodynamics that I talk about in my class, I think, overlap with your chemistry in that. In that course, in that particular chemistry. course, that's yeah. exactly right. So, um, but but Van Hoff had um, uh, ramifications. The things that he did in in all of those subjects, mm-hmm. and so it really is no doubt in my mind that Van Hoff is one of the greatest chemists of all time. And even though we've not heard of him, mm-hmm. um, it's not uh, surprising um, uh, because it's been a while since he did his work. Mm-hmm. But he was the first Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. And so much of what we talk about today is based on some of the things that, that, that he's done. Well, Early, go ahead. I was going to say that it must be, he must have been amazing if the first time to give out a Nobel Prize, you, you choose that person. Because there probably were other people that I can think of off the top of my head. Your, your famous uh, uh, friend, uh, Lavoisier. Or, I mean, I guess he wasn't like, you have to do it. You're not allowed to give posthumous Nobel yeah, Prize you mean Carl Chalet. Well, but weren't you talking about Lavoisier a few podcasts ago as the father of chemistry yes, and so yeah, on? Yeah. But if you can't give them posthumous, so I guess it has to be somebody who's alive. But still, is that is that correct, first of all? You, you, can't, can, give you can't win a Nobel Prize unless you're living. You had mentioned that before, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. But I think that being first on anything, there's a, probably a big list of people you can choose from. Absolutely. Being chosen so is a big deal. Him. Very, very big deal. I think he would understand, though, his sort of loss of uh, fame because uh, he said a famous name has a 
peculiarity in that it becomes gradually smaller, especially in natural sciences, where each succeeding discovery invariably overshadows what it precedes. Mm. And wow. so he's laid a lot of groundwork, and uh, and people have, have he's laid some groundwork yeah. for his own obscurity. Yeah, <laughs> when you think about it, to a degree, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, let's take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about Jacobus Van Hoff. Hi, I'm Ben from the band Sonic Acrylic, who provided the music for this podcast. We just put out our new album, Alternates. Here's a clip from track four, Disasteroid. <laughs> That was Disasteroid off of our new album, Alternates. To hear more, go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you like to listen. Or head on over to our website, sonicacrylic.com. So he got the first Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1901, started as an organic chemist and, uh, in, uh, in the uh, 1870s, early 1870s. And um, first worked on and was able to give an explanation for the phenomenon of isomerism. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of isomerism? Uh I know that iso means the same, so it's That's something right. about the same. Merism maybe something to do with the morphology or something? Or no, shape? it's interesting. No? I, I know you'll know what it is if mm-hmm. I just ask you just a few other things okay. with regards to this. Iso does mean the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mer mm-hmm. is a little chemical unit. Okay. And so um, you've probably heard of little chemical units all stuck to each other mm-hmm. the, with the prefix many polymers so, yeah. so you have a polymer that, that's, okay. i feel stupid so, now. No, that's okay <laughs> so uh, a mer is generally recognized as a little chemical unit so an isomer would be a chemical unit that has something the same as another chemical unit that, that word uh, or that prefix iso is is common i mean you've probably heard of isotopes well, sure haven't you yeah. what's, oh, sure. what's an isotope isotope is uh Atoms are the same element with a different uh, atomic mass. They, 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 each individual atom has different atomic mass, right. but the, um, uh, uh, the reason they have different atomic mass the is, number is, is the number different. of neutrons yeah. change. Well, what's the same about them if they're the number isotopes? of protons? The number of protons. Sorry, the number of protons in identifies the, the element. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's found in the nucleus. And, and so are the number of neutrons, but the number of neutrons could vary. So we have isotopes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have isomers. Mm-hmm. Um, in weather forecasting, you might have uh, heard the term isobars. Mm-hmm. You same know, pressure. The, so we have the same pressure. Yeah. So it's it's this term which uh, uh, or this prefix uh, which indicates that idea of, of sameness. There, there are some other terms that I use in when we talk about thermodynamics from a physics perspective. Uh, different charts when you measure pressure versus volume for things. Mm-hmm. If the uh, pressure stays the same, it's an isobar. If the volume stays the same, it's an isochoric process. Oh, okay. And if the temperature stays the same, it's an isothermal process. There you go. So, so there you go. Yeah. One of these, like, you know, these terms and stuff like that, they all sort of tie together. If you have a good sense for the root n- meanings of these names, you understand mm-hmm. the science a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So I, I, isomerism would be like uh, the same MERS uh, mm-hmm. in a sense, or the same sort of chemical units in the sense that they have the same chemical formulas. Okay. 
but they're structurally different. Okay. There are like geometric isomers in which you have the same atoms, but they're not connected to each other in the same way. Okay. So you have a different structural arrangement or uh, relationship in space to the particles to the way in which they're combined. And uh, the, the interesting thing is there are different kinds of isomers. And one other kind of isomer is called an optical isomer. Hmm. And maybe in your physics background, you probably have a pretty good feel for this. If you make a solution out of optical isomers, and um, uh, you have the, um, uh, one of the isomers will rotate the plane of polarized light in one direction, whereas the other solution made with the other isomer will rotate the plane of, of light in the opposite direction. Okay. So it sort of gives a sense that there is a... Um, a handedness to molecules. Okay, yeah. Like a right, and right hand handedness. and a left-handed yeah. kind of cool. a molecule. Yeah. Same chemical formula, mm-hmm. but uh, one bends light or, or t- turns the polarized light in one direction and mm-hmm. one in the other because it has this right-handedness and left-handedness associated yeah. with it. That's neat. Uh, that idea is referred to as chirality in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes um, molecules that, that behave like this, optical isomers are called chiromolecules. Okay. And they were first discovered by a scientist I'm sure you've heard of before in 18, around 1850, um, a guy who sort of saved the wine industry in France and also has made drinking milk a whole lot safer. <laughs> Louis Pasteur. That's right. So I didn't know the first part, but the uh, second part's pretty easy. Well, he saved the wine industry in France back in the 1800s because they had some problems with um, crystals growing in their um, uh, on the corks in their bottles oh, wow. that he identified as um, a, a series of optical isomers because of the way he grew crystals of the materials that he found and showed that they grew in opposite directions. And so the idea of molecular chirality was around for a while. People didn't know what caused the uh, chirality or this uh, idea of optical isomerism. But, um, but it was first discovered by Louis, Louis Pasteur in 1850. And so around 1870, uh, Van Hoff comes along and begins to uh, uh, explain the chirality in molecules. He really opens up a whole like subdiscipline in chemistry called stereochemistry, right? Where um, you know it involves like taking a look at spatial arrangements of atoms uh, that form the structure of molecules. And one uh, important branch of stereochemistry is study of chiromolecules Mm -hmm. and it all goes back to something that he described which is kind of a famous term that that he came up with called the uh, asymmetric carbon atom asymmetric Asymmetric carbon atom i thought it was symmetric (laughs) well what what do you think makes it symmetric well i would imagine the way it reaches out in space uh, to do what to to bond with other things yeah Yeah. and how many bonds does this carbon chemical typically form my recollection says four that's right yeah so it has a like a tetrahedralness associated with it and so uh, carbon has the opportunity to make four bonds and when it makes four different bonds what do you think we call that four different uh, bonds well if they're if the iso stands for the same something that's different is I can't remember. Well, it now. doesn't have to do with that kind oh, of thing. Oh, that's different. But I just that. gave it to you already. Oh, shoot. It says how much I'm listening. <laughs> that's okay. Go ahead. I have to get this one. It's called the asymmetric carbon oh. atom. Oh, okay. So it's okay. asymmetric if it, if it forms four different bonds. Okay. And the reason why that's uh, important to recognize is because uh, those things arranged in different ways don't allow the molecule to be superimposed upon itself. 
And so mean? it gives it like a, um, a left-handedness and right-handedness to it. It would be sort of like taking those two molecules, like that you have two hands, mm-hmm. and uh, they're mere images of each other. But mm-hmm. if you tried to put a right-handed glove on your left hand, it wouldn't fit. Okay. But I, I a left-handed feel, glove would not fit saying. on a right hand it, uh, yeah. because there's this handedness or, um, mm-hmm. uh, associated with the molecules. And that's the reason why the molecules would... Uh, would um, turn uh, polarized planes of light oh, okay, in different yeah. directions, right? Because right. there's no, they're, they're, you, you can't superimpose them on each other. They're they're the same but not the same. I got it. Uh, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. um, and it's the reason it's for that um, uh, yeah. that differences in spatial relationships and four bonds to carbon. If they have four different ones, they can't be superimposed on each other mm-hmm. completely. You can mm-hmm. maybe get three of the atoms that are connected to carbon to be right, or two mm-hmm. of the atoms to be in the right position, but the other two are not going to be. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, uh, th- this idea of handedness uh, is uh, is especially important in uh, biological uh, um, considerations. Physical properties they're the same. That's if you really have a carbon bonded yeah. to four particular things, they're going to have the f- the same physical properties, yeah. like melting point and color or whatever it is you want to take a look mm-hmm. at. But in biology, where these molecules have to oftentimes fit into receptors where the handedness is going to make a difference because you're not going to be able to get the proper molecules or parts of the atom, I should say, in the molecule lined up to fit. And then certain uh, processes then are not going to take place. It's I mean, re- I'm sorry for interrupting. It's yeah. really interesting to think about how that plays out in our lives because we might think about molecules and fitting together and stuff wouldn't be all that important to oh. us. But I'm, yeah. I'm thinking that you're heading in the direction that shows that it's really, really important. Am I right and, about and, that? Uh, you know, the idea of shape... Yeah. of the molecule is more important to be honest with it than what the actual atoms are once that shape's been formed right and so so many things behave the same way because of the molecular architecture right in three dimensions and that's what van hoff really worked on at the beginning of his career and was one of the reasons why he won the nobel prize but not not the only reason mm-hmm. um, but these biological um, considerations are really interesting uh, living organisms seem to only be able to use left-handed amino acids and not right and not and not right-handed ones. Wow. And and we could use right-handed sugars, but not left-handed sugars. You mean human beings? Human, human beings, yeah. Biological uh, creatures um, tend to be sort of set with one version of the um, uh, of the chiromolecules and not uh, to be able to use them and not the other. So you're veering here into biochemistry then, it seems like to me a little bit, which is good because we don't sure. have the chemistry. We have a chemistry and physics cover most yeah. of it. Now you're starting so this to is a little, a little Yeah, this is some biology, but it's really based on the, the, um, the physical nature of, in three dimensions of the molecules that, that these things uh, you know, are, are comprised of. So um, it's amazing if all the amino acids in the, in the world all of a sudden became right-handed, life would stop. Wow. And the same thing with uh, if we had left-handed sugars only, when we can only use right-handed ones. You've probably heard of this before. Sometimes they put an L or a D in front of the name of the molecule. Uh, uh, L standing that. for levo, okay. which, what do you think that means? Since left, I'm looking at the hand, yeah, it's left-handed, left yeah. yeah. And dextro. Okay, that's right-handed. That's right, yeah, exactly. So, and so on, exactly, yeah. yeah, so you've heard of that as a particular mm-hmm. kind of sugar, like de- okay. dextrose. Okay, oh, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. So there's uh, right-handed is mm-hmm. good for mm-hmm. life, and, mm-hmm. and left-handed cannot be used. In fact, um, we can't work with it, and you could use like some uh, left-handed sugars then as 
as uh, sweeteners that um, have no caloric value because we can't process okay. those oh, things. Oh, wow. This is so, really interesting. Yeah. Wow. It is. Yeah, the shape of the molecule is really important. And we owe so much of what we know about this stuff to Jacobus van Hoff okay. because he really did sort of uh, uh, was the uh, initiator of stereochemistry. Mm. And, and specifically the work with the uh, asymmetric carbon where you get these kinds of situations when you have four different things attached to carbon. They, they, they can't be superimposed on each other no matter how you turn them. And so um, you end up with this uh, chirality associated with the can molecules. I, can I ask a quick sure. question here? Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about the evolution of life, though, mm-hmm. and you know, taking maybe what was available and letting it adapt to the surroundings, do you think that life in and of itself might have been able to adapt to the opposite handedness of the sugars or whatever. I remember uh, seeing a video one time on like theories as to why life started in one way and not the other. Right. And I'm not sure if, if, you know, what the particular reason was, but for some reason Mm -hmm. it did Mm -hmm. develop in a certain way. There's Um, a reason for it. Yeah. yeah, I would, I would guess, uh, or maybe it was chance that, you know, Mm -hmm. you had a 50, 50 chance Mm -hmm. at some point, but Mm -hmm. then, one thing has somebody's to happen. Somebody's listening and, to this podcast and has an expertise in biology. Yeah, please let us know. Uh, please let yeah. us know. Yeah, yeah that would be great. <laughs> there are like examples of um, of, uh, of these chiromolecules and their biological uh, 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 you know, problems that can come up with them uh, or things that just make them different. Uh, one was uh, with, uh, th- have you ever heard of thalidomide? Yeah, because uh, I think that's almost like uh, something they give to pregnant women and it causes birth defects. Yeah, it was given like in the ago. 1950s and 60s uh, as a nausea treatment for pregnant women. And what they found later on was that one of the um, one of these uh, molecules um, of the op- optical isomers, they're called enantiomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, one of the enantiomers caused these uh, you know, grave birth defects and it was very, very unfortunate for so many for so many children. Uh, so uh, you know, the one version of it helped with nausea, but the other version caused these these defects. Wow. Hey, when we return from the break, we'll discuss other contributions Van Hoff made to the science of chemistry. This is Ben again from Sonic Acrylic. Really hope you enjoyed the clip we played at the last break. Gonna play another one here for you off of track six on the album. This is called Forever. That was a clip off of track six forever. You can find more at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and wherever else you listen. Thanks. Well, Van Hoff did so much work, and very, very importantly, on this uh, asymmetric carbon and the, and the reason for um, chiral molecules. But he really moved on to talking about reaction kinetics, which is how fast uh, reactions take place, and did a lot of work with equilibrium, which is really the goal of, of all chemical processes to reach equilibrium. But he really worked mostly at the end with uh, uh, the thermodynamic properties of solutions. And so uh, he really laid the fundamental groundwork in doing all these things for physical chemistry, even though he started out as an organic chemist. And so um, uh, 
I'm wondering if you recognize some of the things associated with solutions term-wise that he impacted upon. Um, how about like the process of making a solution? Are you familiar with the various parts of solutions? Um, I think there's the solvent and the solute. And this what's goes, different about them? The solvent is the material or the medium in which the solute dissolves. That's right, yeah. Okay, something like um, that. So you dissolve the solute in the solvent. Right. And, uh, but there's a better way to describe those okay. kinds of things. I think mm-hmm. that really explains things a little bit more. If you were making Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and you were getting sugar to dissolve in water, mm-hmm. knowing that a solution is a homogeneous mixture, what has to happen to that sugar? I would imagine it has to break apart. Not the sugar. I guess the molecules have to separate some. Let me emphasize a little bit differently. If you put solid sugar Mm -hmm. in water Mm -hmm. and you know you have to end up with a homogeneous mixture, which is just like one phase because it's homogeneous, Mm -hmm. then what has to happen to the sugar? It has to spread out completely. True, but if I'm emphasizing phases, I'm doing really that's okay. Here. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm not asking good questions, maybe. Um, but so, uh, but the sugar has to change phase. Okay. So yeah. solutes are oftentimes recognized as the substance that changes phase. Oh, okay. And so uh, okay. when you're making solutions, you want to keep that kind of See, thing I in mind. I always think about maybe obviously wrong in this case is like the um, the phase of the sugar just stays the same it's just broken up into teeny little pieces perhaps well i mean when you 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 yeah. talked about like the spreading out of things the yeah, pooling apart so that's essence of like you know uh, of, of boiling right you have oh, a, okay. a liquid and then and then the particles separate okay so, so the separation accounts for like a phase change sort of a thing absolutely yeah in okay, fact you can't okay. understand solution making unless you understand phase chemistry and maybe everybody should know that you know there are three phases there's solid liquid and gas that's right and yeah. any of those could be the solute or the solvent and oh. so could you do some quick math and tell me how many different kinds of solutions there are based on phase? Uh, four? No, six. The solute could be the, a gas, a solid, or a liquid, and so can the solvent. Okay. So envision a three-by-three three really matrix. Hard. Envision a three-by-three three matrix. How many so possible? I'll say nine. There are nine. That's exactly right. Yeah. You could have a solid dissolved in a, in a solid oh, or I, okay. in a liquid yeah. or a gas. Yeah, you were probably mm. not thinking about the dissolving in itself. Same thing in yeah, itself. The same right. Now, when you have the same phases, then you take a look at which substance you have a greater amount of and call that the solvent. Oh. But that could be taken a look at in different ways, too. It could be by mass. It could be by number of particles. It could be mm-hmm. by volume. It's really, but, uh, really interesting yeah. because I think most, I, I don't think, I think of a, a solution as being some liquid that has a solid dissolved in it. That's the only one you're probably familiar, familiar with. But a solid and a solid seems really strange, but I guess that's well, possible. Well, if you have like any jewelry, they're mostly solid solutions, unless okay. you have like pure gold or something okay. like that. Uh, I know like white gold is a combination of nickel and gold, like an alloy or bronze oh. or brass. Those are all solid solution. solutions. Yeah. Uh, you know, what about like uh, humidity? You know what humidity is? That's water and air. Yeah, so but what water is normally what phase at room temperature? Usually liquid, but it's in a but, gas But it's, it's dissolved into yeah. the air. And so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a gaseous wow. solution in which wow. a liquid's been dissolved in the gas. This is eye-opening to me, Mark. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> you never thought about this stuff I, I really haven't thought about it. I mean, obviously, it's like a lot of things in science. The, the concepts are relatively easy to understand. Sure. It's just you know, if you're not exposed to them, it's not familiar. Right. Once it's familiar. And this is what, you know, maybe we're, our hope for this podcast is for... People listening to it to be enlightened in the same way I am today. This is great. Yeah, it's not that you have misconceptions. You don't have a, a, a conception or a proper right. conception and things yeah. like that. It doesn't mean it's bad yeah. uh, to think one thing one way or another. But mm-hmm. it is good when you you feel good when you hear something that sort of clicks into your experience and you say, oh, yeah, that, but that does make sense to me now taking a look and at it. And usually when that happens, it, it's like a longer term learning, you know, because it makes so much sense that... 
You don't oh, have yeah. to worry about changing your mind about it ever again. It's just like you feel really confident in what you know. Exactly. So this is good. Yeah. So um, Van Hoff worked with um, solutions that were dilute. And so uh, you have a sense for what dilute might mean? Less, more solvent and less solute. That's exactly yeah. right. So concentrated would mean? The opposite of that. So yeah. you have a lot of solute right. around. There's right. no um, benchmark that says, you know, you pass this certain concentration, it becomes mm-hmm. concentrated, and less than that's dilute. Mm-hmm. But as scientists or chemists work with these things, you just sort of know and could recognize mm. uh, a dilute solution doesn't have much solute around. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, and you were talking, the, the probably most familiar kind of solution that you know of is a solid dissolved in a liquid, where you take this solid, which is somewhat non-volatile, which means that mean? it doesn't evaporate readily. Solids have what I would consider like low vapor pressures. Whereas things like uh, liquids, especially like acetone or alcohols, they evaporate readily. I right. mean, if you put them on your that. skin, you know that because what do you feel? You feel cold. You feel cold as evaporation takes place. That's an endothermic process. I always used to tell my students evaporation is a cooling process. A cooling process. That's endothermic in chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that that means energy has to be taken from you, given to that liquid, and then the liquid will evaporate. As you mentioned before, the particles separate. That could happen below the boiling point. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to happen at the boiling point, mm-hmm. but, but uh, in a given sample, most particles can't do that, but some of them can. Mm-hmm. And so you have evaporation taking place. Uh, as your skin heats it up, you give more energy to the particles, and eventually they could all break away. Yeah, and all of us have felt that like if you have a cut or something like that and somebody decides to put an alcohol wipe on there to clean it off, yeah. that cooling feeling, which sometimes feels good, other times I guess it could produce other sort yeah. of sensations, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, that definitely is a familiar thing. So, well, when you put uh, these non-volatile solutes in liquids, like, like water, mm-hmm. uh, you actually change the vapor pressure of the solvent. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think would go, how the vapor pressure would change? Thinking about putting something non-volatile into something that's volatile. It would probably come down. It, yeah, it lowers the vapor pressure. Okay. I mean, in one sense, uh, you could think like those particles are going to interact with the solvent that's there. I'm talking about these sol- solute particles are going to mm-hmm. interact and sort of hold them back. Okay. And so yeah. uh, we don't have as high a vapor pressure. And, and the more particles we have dissolved in the liquid, the more that effect will be. I'm just thinking too, as, as people are listening to this, when you think of vapor pressure, you're looking at like the amount of pressure caused by in a sense, evaporation above the fluid that this, say, say for example, water. Yes. As the water evaporates and more of that water becomes gaseous water, mm. the pressure above that is a certain level then. But if you do that in a closed container, mm-hmm. then you get particles above the liquid that also begin to condense. And there's like an equilibrium. And so you have an equilibrium then? set up mm-hmm. between condensation and evaporation. So the okay. number of particles above the liquid is constant. And it's at that point that you would measure the vapor pressure. I see. Yeah, so you the, can't do it in a dynamic way. You have to have it in a static situation where there's well it's actually dynamic it's equilibrium, dynamic but equilibrium. it's closed I and see. so you can't sense, things yeah. can't escape and be in equilibrium it. i got it i just and, wanted to clarify that in case somebody was wondering that's right yeah listening. i appreciate that mm-hmm. uh and and the weaker the forces of attraction are between the particles the higher the vapor pressure will be that makes sense because it's easier for them to escape from each that's other that's right and vol- volatile substances have lower bond strengths and mm-hmm. non uh, non-volatile ones like in solids they're, mm-hmm. they're they have stronger bonds between right. the pertinent particles good and so vapor pressure goes down based on the number of particles that are there, the solute that's dissolved. And that's referred to as a colligative property. Mm-hmm. I have actually, I remember that because I, I always liked that phrase, oh, colligative like, properties. Colligative, yeah. <laughs> They're properties just, that are associated on the number of solute particles that are dissolved, not their identity. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's once dissolved, you just need to count the particles and you get a greater effect based on the number of particles which are there. Okay. So molecular solutes like sugar and alcohol, those are things that will dissolve in water. Uh, a, the concentration, a certain concentration of those will have a less, a, less of an effect as the same concentration of like salt, which is sodium chloride, yeah. because that breaks up upon dissolving into two particles. Yeah. So you get twice the effect in a ah, sense. Ah, okay. That's, that's, cool. that's what a colligative yeah. property is. Okay. So vapor pressure could be lowered. And uh, whatever vapor pressure influence is then also going to be changed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, some of the big physical properties for different substances uh, include like freezing point and boiling point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you could see how the, if the vapor pressure changes, uh, those things are going to be altered because freezing point and boiling point are based on the vapor pressure of the solution. Okay. I'm sure you've seen substances boil. Yeah. What is it that a, you notice about them? What is it that you really it's a see? R- rapid change of a uh, of phase. So, like if it's a liquid you know, over on a stove, like water or something mm-hmm. like that, you can see bubbles inside of it. That's the, that's the key. You up. can see bubbles because yeah. it's it's a phase change that happens in the body of the liquid. In the body. And if the, the vapor pressure of the liquid wasn't high enough to overcome the atmospheric pressure that's pushing down on the right. surface of that liquid, you would never be able you to create the escape. bubble. Yeah. And so, if you're below the boiling point where that mm-hmm. happens, evaporation can occur on the right. surface. Right. It's the same process, just at the surface rather than from underneath. Evaporation is a surface phenomenon, and right. boiling takes place in the body of the liquid. Okay. But the vapor pressure has to be equal to the atmospheric pressure for boiling to take place because you need to be able to produce bubbles, bubbles uh, so right. they can push back yeah. at the atmosphere pushing down on the surface of the liquid yeah i remember when i think about bubbles i always think about mr bubble it was oh like yeah a, it was like a special, <laughs> we it was like basically like you put it in the in your bath and you get a ton of bubbles and stuff um, yeah. yeah i know little kids like that and the reason i bring this up is kind of funny but i had to go to a, a eye doctor one time when i had a retinal detachment and uh, they used to have to put using a hypodermic needle little bubbles into your eye to push your retina back in place and i had to have this done five times and the ophthalmologist called me mr bubble (laughs) so i understand bubbles bubbles are important to you that's exactly right well if the vapor pressure of the solution goes down then we're going to have to raise that solution to a higher temperature to get the vapor pressure equal to the atmospheric pressure right. again. So right. that's why boiling point could change I see. Uh, when you make a solution. Yeah. Uh, and you actually get what's referred to as boiling point elevation. Yeah. So the liquid's going to, um, or the solution is going to have a higher boiling point than the solvent by itself. And mm-hmm. so you expand the liquid range now of that mixture compared to the solvent by itself. How much do you have to have a difference between like a pure liquid like maybe you had h2o just water yeah. in, a, in a bowl yeah or in a, in a pot and you want to boil it yeah. and then you put other things in it right. to have a solution can it significantly change or is yeah, it just it, a matter it really of- does that's why uh, cooks oftentimes put salt in water mm-hmm. because you can cook food faster so if you make a, a salt solution and you get that to boil it's going to be boiling at a higher temperature depending upon the concentration how many yeah. particles you put in there that's why it's a colligative property mm-hmm. but i mean you, you can get the boiling point to raise up you know four or five degrees that and much. that really has a wow. significant impact on how fast it takes to cook food the higher the Could- temperature the faster it's going to cook. So if you're cooking potatoes, mm -hmm. it's going to take less time or noodles or whatever. And that's a positive thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, cooks do it all the time. And that's what um, happens with a pressure cooker too. Uh, You raise the temperature at which the water boils. And so it's going to cook things faster. That's not a solution thing, but it's a similar um, idea. It's a similar idea. Yeah. So you you change the pressure above the liquid to get it to boil Mm -hmm. at a higher temperature. And is it more dangerous then to to cook with water or whatever that has a higher temperature? Well, I don't think it's that much more 
difficult or, or dangerous, dangerous all for the time. us. But uh, yeah. you know, you always have to be careful with it. Mm-hmm. But but every ten degrees that you raise the temperature of water upon boiling, pretty much doubles the rate at which processes are going to happen in it. So wow. well, you can go from one hundred really to one hundred and ten. Yeah. You, know, you can really change the time you have to cook. So okay. like a, a you know a, a, a three minute egg, which yeah. is like a soft boiled egg. Yeah. Uh, you know, under normal conditions, would only be a minute and a half egg at 110 degrees. Wow. So, oh, um, so it, 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 the practical aspects mm-hmm. of chemistry now yes. are now you, <laughs> are being completely fleshed out by Mark. Exactly. That's good. So, but there's also um, the idea that since the vapor pressure of the of the s- solution becomes lesser than the pure solvent, that you could change the freezing point too. Okay. Because freezing and melting those are two complementary things in a sense opposite happening at the same temperature normally it would be zero degrees for water where right. it melts or it freezes um, if you lower the vapor pressure of the solution the uh, vapor pressure of that and the solid that's um, uh, formed from the mel- uh, freezing process they will no longer be in equilibrium with each other mm. and so uh, the the material will not freeze at at the normal temperature. You have to lower it right. because the uh, vapor pressure of the solution will change when you drop the temperature um, a little bit faster than the vapor pressure of the solid. And so at a lower temperature, they will meet again. Okay. So freezing and melting takes place when the vapor pressure of the solid and the liquid are equal to each other. And yeah. if you can get that to happen again, it happens at lower temperatures, then, um, then you um, will have lowered the freezing point mm-hmm. and that's uh, good and that's important I too think of that sure yeah because um uh, what you're doing is expanding the liquid range you high, elevate the boiling point and you lower the freezing point okay. and so everything about basically the liquid phase can happen at a higher and lower temperature that's exactly right yeah. rather than right and i know you were talking about you can change the pressure changes can do that too but you're talking about yes, doing this but keeping at the same pressure that these are yeah. the these are the things that you can alter to okay. do that kind of thing so um, uh, there's an equation that, that uh, was developed to show how much you could change the temperature of, of those things. And it's like delta T equals KMI, where delta T stands for what? The temperature change? Temperature change, that's right. K is a constant associated with a particular solvent. And each solvent um, uh, has a particular, it's called a freezing point or boiling point constant that lets you know how much it's going to be affected by the particles which are dissolved in it. Um, the M stands for molality, which is another, it's just a concentration term, which describes how many particles are there. And the last, uh, uh, the last variable is I, hmm. and it's referred to as, do you know? I, I, I don't. I it's don't. called the Van't Hoff factor. Ah, yeah. okay. So the Good. equation is delta T equals I KMI. <laughs> and uh, so K is a constant. Depending upon the solvent, M is the concentration term called molality, and I is the Van Hoff factor, which tells us how many particles we get when a particular substance dissolves if it dissociates into particles. So like as I was saying before, like mm-hmm. sugar and alcohol, they dissolve, but they don't dissociate. Okay. And so the Van Hoff factor for those would be you know, one. One, yeah. that's right. And sodium chloride dissolves and then dissociates into two ions, so it would have a Van Hoff factor of, of two. And do you know the formula for calcium chloride? CaCl3? Close. CaCl2? <laughs> yes, it's okay, CaCl2. Sorry. And okay. so just based on the formula, you can tell me the Van Hoff factor for that would be, be three. would be yeah, three. That makes sense. So when things dissolve and dissociate, you get a greater number of particles and you get a greater effect of boiling point elevation or freezing point depression. Wow. And so that's why certain substances are used uh, on the roads in uh, places where it's cold and it gets icy outside. 
uh, to lower the freezing point. And things like sodium chloride or salt, as we generically call it, are placed on the roads to uh, lower the vapor pressure and make the ice melt because it depresses the freezing point. Um, calcium chloride could be used as well. It's just more expensive, and, but, but it does a better job per formula. Is it either of those that do more or less damage to the road surface or do they both do that? I, I, I don't know that there's anything in particular indifference about those things. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's salt in our environment already. Right. Some people claim that like salt on cars might cause them to rust quicker. Okay. Uh, calcium chloride seems to be something that you could wash away a little bit easier, at least in my experience. Okay. They're those little white prilled balls that you can yeah. buy. Uh, that, I thought that, those uh, were more de-icing roads. It's a little bit more expensive. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, and, but it goes a little bit further in the okay. sense that the same quantity particle wise does a, has a, has a well, bigger effect sense. on it. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned this too, because, uh, the conductivity of water, for example, is affected by the minerals that are dissolved in it. Oh, sure. And yeah. for example, I always, they always used to do this on old detective shows or something. If somebody would drop a radio into a bathtub where yeah. somebody was yeah. a person would get electrocuted, you yeah. know, that, but that wouldn't happen with pure water. No, no. You have to have the ions dissolved in it that can carry the electrical signal and so on in order to, to electrocute Absolutely. somebody. Well, that's so, why you should. Yeah, if you're worried about that, don't use soap. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put ions in the well, water. And, and some of that comes from your own body, right? Oh, I mean, sure. The minerals yes. that are dissolved in the water. So you're electrocuting yourself. Yes, no doubt about it. Sorry for that uh, sidebar No, that's there. okay. I guess when, when you think about uh, Van Hoff, I think it's important to recognize that you know he is given credit even though a lot of people haven't heard about him right. i mean he won the nobel prize historically the first one you know scientifically in chemistry it's really good uh he has this van Hoff factor um given in, in his honor which i think would be really nice to have uh something like that as as uh you know a testament to what you've done i know that um you know other people have equations named after or them. units as we talked units, about exactly. with james jewell yeah in yeah. fact um uh, you had mentioned in a previous podcast like on his gravestone there is something what what was on it was the the number of uh, it's like an equation between mechanical energy and heat it was like 772.55 i believe it was foot pounds per calorie btu maybe well, that was early oh, okay. but you're right i mean yeah. that's certainly a, a tribute to to a have something that like that, that is really yeah. significant so this van hoff factor to me says you know it gives uh credence to you know the statement at the beginning when i was saying that you know he's one of the greatest chemists of all time um uh, on um, on different people's gravestones, like you mentioned, they have things on Ludwig Boltzmann's gravestone. You know what's there? Boltzmann's constant. <laughs> it's not Boltzmann's constant, oh, although oh. I mean it's there, but it's in a formula. It's not oh. just or an equation. It's not just the constant itself. Well, it's used in several equations, but I get maybe it has to do with the average kinetic energy or something. It's not energy. It's entropy. Oh, it's entropy, his entropy sure. equation. It's which S- is a topic we need to cover. Yes, in we one will. Of these podcasts. Yeah. yeah. S equals K log W. Okay. Uh, and so S stands for? Entropy. That's right. And, um, and a K is Boltzmann's constant. constant. Right. Um, and the log of W, do you know what W is? I don't remember right now. It's called the multiplicity. And it okay. stands for the number of microstates a certain macrostate would have. Okay. Yeah. So at, at absolute zero, when all particles are in their place and they're not moving at all, how many microstates would there be Just possible? One. Just one. And yeah. what's the log of one? Zero. And what's some constant times zero? Zero. So what's the entropy value associated with a perfect crystal at absolute zero? Zero. Zero. That's yeah. right. And that's what gives us a natural benchmark for absolute entropy. I see. And it really has to do with the it's third law of It's funny you bring this up. I have a memory of a conversation we had 
one time when we were driving home from school and I had said something about entropy. He said, no, that's wrong. Oh, <laughs> and I said, I, and, I, and, I, and I think it was had to do with my not knowing what you just said. Okay. And I felt like I wanted to make sure you were right. And I went and looked it up. Uh, <laughs> I hope so, I yeah, no, no, you were right. I was wrong. I think it's interesting. Uh, and you had mentions before, like about gravestones, um, you know, and whether or not people get their attribution by people placing certain things on there. I looked up Van Hoff's and uh, he was cremated, so he doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't have a gravestone. He's but, been uh, dissolved. But somebody you all, that everybody knows is Stephen Hawking. Yeah, know? he just he do, just passed away. Yeah, and do you know what's on his stone? It's in Westminster Abbey. I, I don't know, but I, I'm interested. Yeah. To, it's, to it's his, uh, it's his um, um, the sort of, it's called his temperature of a black hole equation. Okay. Um, it's T equals H times C cubed divided by eight pi times G times M times K. That's a lot. So I know. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but it describes the, the temperature of a black hole when, oh, okay. um, and, and, and we're, we're, and then the radiation that's coming off of it the as Hawking a result radiation. of that kind of would thing. would have been really interesting if that equation actually had a, an English word where if you said yeah, those letters thing. together well, and that thing referred to, the, I don't know, something the, about the The interesting universe. thing is like each one of those constants are things that you're familiar with. It's mm-hmm. T equals H times C cubed divided by two pi times yeah. G times M times K. Yeah, so H is what? H is uh, Planck's, con- Planck's, Planck's constant. constant. That's right. C is... Speed of light. The speed of light. Yeah. Pi is what number? 3.14 and a whole bunch of other That's numbers. That's right. A capital that. G is... The gravitational constant. Gravitational constant. Yeah. M is the mass of the of the uh, black hole. Okay. And then K is who we just talked about. Boltzmann's constant. Boltzmann's constant. Yeah. So it's interesting um, that um, Hawking has Boltzmann's constant on his gravestone, wow. and so does yeah. so does Boltzmann. Um, and <laughs> well, so uh, you know, I think that we, we want to give people credit, and but sometimes that credit is sort of lost in the mm-hmm. history of things, and that's why it's important for us to talk about them. Yeah. There was a fellow named Wilder Bancroft who said. We can distinguish three groups of scientific men. I'd like to say people, but uh, this is what he said. We can distinguish three groups of scientific men. In the first and very small group, we have men who discover fundamental relations. Among these are Van Hoff, Arrhenius, and Nernst. Three people that he mentioned only, and Van Hoff was one of them. Mm -hmm. In the second group, we have men who do not make the great discovery, but who see the importance of bearing and bearing of it, and who preach the gospel to the heathen. Oswald stands absolutely at the head of this group. The last group contains the rest of us, the men who have to have things explained to us. Hmm. So Very um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so Van Hoff is in that upper echelon of scientists. And I hope that as a result of us talking about him, you know, a little bit more chemistry and a little bit more appreciation for the history of things. Yeah, it's really, more, uh, really neat, Mark. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, you take it easy. All right, bye-bye. Bye. This has been MySciencePrep.com's Chemistry and Physics Podcast. It was produced in Pittsburgh, PA. Visit MyScience-Prep.com for more episodes.